Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Katie Faust, founder of a children's rights-focused nonprofit called Them Before Us. She's also the author of the book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. I had the privilege of meeting Katie when she spoke in the Transamerica breakout panel at the uh, Edmund Burke Foundation's National Conservatism Conference last month in Miami, and I'm delighted to carry on that conversation today. Katie, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Oh, it's great to be with some optimists every now and then. <laughs> well, believe it or not, uh, the uh, uh, I had a guest on the show a couple weeks ago. I, I won't name him. Any, any of our listeners who have heard all of our episodes will probably remember this one, uh, but... Uh, I usually try to at the towards the end of an episode, I'll try to start asking my guests, like, where do you see hope for our, our falling civilization or our culture? This is the first guest who basically looked back at me and said, I see no hope. And I was kind of like, what do you do? Wait, wait, wait. Was it? Let me ask. Was it Carl Truman? No, though he okay. would be. Now he would be a, a great guy to have on my show. I'm, Just because uh, I, I heard an interview by him the other day where um, somebody said, uh, like, well, what are you thinking about the future? And he goes, well, I've kind of just like acquiesced to the reality that we're going to lose no matter what. And it's very, <laughs> he's like, it's very freeing. You know, now it's like, I don't have to focus on all of these. I don't have to like rage against the machine of what's going to happen next week because it frees me up to build into the next generation and to simply like really do the work of cultivating the soil so there can be future successes. That's kind of the way I, I heard it. And I was like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep fighting, but I also, and not that he's not fighting, but um, like, I do think that there are still battles to be won. I think that there are arguments to be made in the here and now, but yes, um, we don't necessarily have, the odds are not in our favor in terms of like institutional power. The odds are absolutely in our favor when it comes to natural realities. Will we or will we not argue effectively for those natural realities is the question. It's a it's a great question. And since you mentioned Carl Truman and I have it handy, I'll quickly plug his uh, the older version of his book. Uh, this is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He just came out with a popular version of this book. So uh, for any of our listeners, if you are wanting the uh, academic chops version of Carl Truman's book, uh, that's uh, you want the bigger one. The uh, the uh, the new one yeah. that just came out. Uh, strange new world, strange, brave world, something like that. It's basically the lighter version of that. And he does exactly what you described towards the end of this book. I mean, he literally, he lays out a really compelling intellectual history of how we got to the expressive individual. And uh, his whole question is, how can people think that the sentence, uh, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, makes sense when they've never taken a gender studies class? They don't have any obvious source of trans ideology, but they just mm -hmm. accept it. Well, he, he lays out how we got there. And by the end, Truman's just kind of like, and here we are. Someone else needs to come up with the solutions. I, I've told you what the problems yeah. are. Yeah, um, I love it. And I'll tell you what, if you can, you know, if you're Josh Harrington, you can read Rise and Triumph. If you're the JV team, like me, you can read Brave New World, which is what I did. Um, very helpful, right? Yep. It helps you put to words, right? You know, I'm so grateful for these people that help put two words, what is happening in our world? So, you know, you can recognize the water you're swimming in when before you're like, I didn't even know I was in this water. Totally true. And I don't mean to disparage the uh, the popular version. I think there's a lot of value yeah. in academics who can do the heavy lifting and then mm -hmm. also do the difficult work of converting that to something that ordinary people can understand. Because honestly, yeah. 
once we're out of college, most of us are not going to just sit down and spend six hours in like deep philosophy land. I really appreciate mm -hmm. the ones who do, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of people, they want something they can think about, but they're also in the middle of real life. And that's a different scenario. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Katie, let's, let's get to you. Enough about Carl Truman. Let's get to you. I really want to know a bit more of your story. And uh, as part of that, do help us know like where your nonprofit got its start. Uh, what 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 happened to help convince you that children's rights really need a champion? Yeah, well, uh, it's a, it's kind of a short story. I haven't been doing this for long. Uh, Ten years ago, I wasn't writing or blogging or anything about any of this. Um, I was just a stay-at-home mom and pastor's wife, and we had just come home from China with our youngest child um, that we adopted from China. Um, and so, like, I am much more... Um, I'm a non-confrontationalist, which is kind of funny because everything that I'm doing now has to do with confronting some of the most contentious issues in culture today. Um, but to me, you know, it was really the marriage debate that, you know, I think all of us have had like a red mm -hmm. pill moment, right? And that was my red pill moment of, um, you know, this this demonization of supporters of traditional marriage as bigots, haters, homophobes. Um, and so that was a real problem for me because my mom has been in a relationship with her partner since I was 10. You know, I kind of grew up in that world in a lot of ways. Um, I still have a very strong relationship, very strong relationship with my mom. I love her partner. Like, you're phobia, seeing that from, like, hatred. Inside. Like, What's you, that? You're, you're seeing that, that world from the inside. I mean, you've got family who yeah. are deeply connected to the, yeah. the homosexual community. I was in this world before they even talked about it as a world. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, like I've, I've been like hanging out, living with lesbians before most of you like gender nonconformists were even born. You know what I mean? So I'm just like, have a seat, have a seat. Okay. And none of it is motivated. You know, there's no, there's no pho phobia. So laughable, right? But animus and hatred. I mean, come on. It is. But what I saw is it being those terms being wielded very effectively to silence mm. people who otherwise would speak up about their positions, their convictions. The other big thing that changed for me is when I heard the marriage debate um, surface in my state in Washington in 2012 was this narrative, right? That kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads, which means kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And that was really where I felt like I needed to stand up and fight because I have been working with kids for decades um, in youth ministry. I used to be the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. Um, and I have never met a kid that didn't care that their father or mother was gone. Um, and very, very often it ended up being one of the greatest, most burdensome, most tender wounds that they experienced in their life. And so to me, this idea that you are going to politicize and weaponize like some of a child's greatest loss that to me was where I decided, uh, okay, I, it's worth losing friends. It is worth standing up. It is worth making some people uncomfortable. If I, if speaking the truth about children's need for a mother and father um, is going to cost me personally, I guess that's where we are right now. So I think a lot of other people in the conservative or newly conservative, new, new conservatives, they've all kind of had their moment of wait a second, you're lying to me about that. Wait a second, you're politicizing, you're weaponizing, you're, you're gaslighting. Like all of us have had different moments. So that was my moment, right? Is mm. the marriage, the marriage debate. Um, and then um, I was blogging anonymously and then I was outed 
by a gay blogger who really docks, he docks the members of my church to try to get me to stop writing and stop speaking. Um, mm. And that sort of removed the veil of anonymity. So um, I was able to do things like write Supreme Court amicus briefs. Now that I was, you know, known, I was able to speak to the legislature in Taiwan and lobby members of parliament in Australia and run workshops at the United Nations and things like that. So um, it was not a voluntary advocacy. Um, you know, I just thought that I would get in my little corner of the internet and talk about why kids need moms and dads. Um, so after I was outed, you know, I connected with a lot of other people who also mm. have an LGBT parent and then got connected to the donor conceived community and kids that were created through sperm and egg donation and very, 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 and then realized that divorce was a topic that nobody was taking seriously, even in the conservative world in terms of how damaging that policy has been to the to the lives and thriving of hundreds of thousands and millions of kids in this country for the last couple of decades. Um, and coming to the conclusion that, you know what, every marriage and family conversation, every topic that we deal with from the definition of marriage to same sex parenting, to reproductive technologies, and even to adoption is obsessively focused on what adults want. It's mm. all about adult desire. It's all about their longing, their loss, their desires, their identity, their hopes. And it's always the kids who have to sacrifice. And when it comes to sex, right, sexual liberation, sexual identity for adults, because sex is connected to babies, that means adult sexual expression and adult sexual desire always means that kids will be sacrificed on that altar. And namely, that means kids losing their mother or father, right? And that's what I say to the people I speak with. You know, we've got all different, we've got all new iterations of modern family today. I mean, just Two days ago, a judge in New York decided that it's it's time for polygamy, right? They ruled in a in a housing case. It's time for polygamy, right? Every new iteration of marriage and family really just means child loss. That's what it is. It's code for child loss, and I just don't think kids should have to lose so that adults can live as they please. So that's sort of the origins of the nonprofit. It is every marriage and family issue from the perspective of children have a right to their mother and father. All adults, single married, gay, straight, fertile, infertile, you bend to children's rights. Don't make kids sacrifice for you. Wow. That just is, I, 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 I want to stick to my play, my, my outline, but I just like that, that I find that such a compelling <laughs> vision. Like, I don't know how anybody goes against that. I don't know how you hear whatever your relational status or your conviction, whatever your, your desire for marriage or, or whatever is, I don't know how you hear that and disagree with that. Like, how do yeah. what what typical responses do you get, particularly from uh, maybe? I I have not met many of these people, but I'm confident they must exist. Uh, Well-intentioned parents on the left. Um, how do yeah. they hear that when they, where maybe for all kinds of good reasons they've said vote for in favor of gay marriage, in favor of trans stuff, bathroom stuff, mm -hmm. and so on, mm -hmm. and then suddenly they hear this and like it reframe it, it seems to reframe so many assumptions. How does, how does that person respond to your argument? Well, pre-argument, like pre-reading the book, their objections are all of the, all of the ways that all the things they've been saturated in all of the things that they've seen modeled on media that never presents the conservative argument, honestly, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is just about your religion. Well, love makes a family. Kids don't need moms and dads. They just need to be safe and loved. 
um, biology doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like they'll just throw that out um, pre-hearing the arguments. But if they dare, if they dare to read the book, the book, you know, if they dare to read our book, if they actually listen to a, you know, hour and a half interview podcast that actually allows me to give them the space to respond to a lot of these objections. Um, the only real argument left is ad hominem attacks. That's mm. really the only thing that they've got after that, because this is a perspective on every marriage and family issue that is grounded in reality. It's a reality that can be verified and validated through biblical truth. That's true. Um, but we actually don't make our arguments based on biblical truth, even though I am a pastor's wife. I carry my Bible around with me everywhere. Like I read the Bible with almost everybody I'm with. This is my authority, but I don't make my case based on scripture. I make my case based on natural law, social mm -hmm. science, and the stories of children themselves who have had to live these modern family ideas, right? Look them in the face. I've put 120 or so of their stories in the book. So you can look at them. And then you can tell them, now oh, biology doesn't matter, kid. Love made your family, right? Even though it meant that you lost a relationship with your father permanently and intentionally, you should just be so happy about that, right? Because look at, you were safe and loved or whatever it is, right? So when you actually grapple, I do have a lot of people who on, you know, leading into reading the book or hearing an interview or listening to a speech or whatever it is, goes, I don't, I don't agree with that. And maybe it's because they've seen massive amounts of hypocrisy um, mm -hmm. from the right, or maybe it's because they've only heard a religious argument, um, or maybe it's because they have not had their honest questions answered well. Um, but that the thing about this perspective, that children have a right to their mother and father, it's a natural right, verified by the best social science, common sense, and even the five major religions of the world, is that what it actually does is you lay out this case, and it is, it's a seamless garment of, of children's rights advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do have answers for everything. We do have satisfying answers for everything. They are difficult answers. They're answers that, that insist that you do hard things so kids don't have to, but it's going to be logically consistent. And all of these conclusions and all of these responses are going to align with child well-being and child thriving. So um, once you grapple with this case, with these arguments, um, there isn't a lot of pushback, um, and there's ideological pushback, but again, it, you know, that ideology is yeah. inconsistent and self-refuting in and of itself. Oh, I, I don't want to distract too much from the actual argument. I want to get there in just a second, but I think that is such an interesting example of really where it seems to me conservatives need to be arguing today. Um, we don't need to just revive uh, traditional views because it was done that way. Um, yeah. We don't need to just argue, well, because the Bible said so. I mean, this is true for mm -hmm. both Christians and, or really non-Christians wouldn't be arguing that way typically anyway, but especially Christians need to be able to argue in that way that is that is accessible to yep. human reason. I think Aristotle mm -hmm. made the case millennia ago that man is by nature a creature who designs to know. We have this mm -hmm. natural reason that God has given us that is accessible from a variety of different points. And if we can communicate conservative, true, biblically faithful ideas in that language, if we can create such a compelling case that people have to violate the own, their strictures of reason to disagree with us, mm -hmm. yeah. that's an argument that wins. And that's right. 
Um, I think part of what you what you do with this argument is so interesting is that uh, you made the claim that um, based on this argument about children's rights, conserv if conservatives run this argument, they never lose the marriage or family argument ever again. Right. That's correct. That is correct. If you are going to, and, and honestly, the pro-life template is the one that we need to follow, right? They built the pro-life movement, has changed culture and is starting to change law because they have stood firmly on children's natural rights. They have mm. emphasized the humanity of the child. They've been able to give honest answers to honest questions. They've been able to do it in a secular, non-religious way. Mm. That is what wins, right? So now I often say, you know, if abortion, fighting abortion is children's rights 1.0, marriage and family is children's rights 2.0, okay? So the same kind of mentality, the same kind of tactics that made so many gains culturally and legally in the realm of anti-abortion work, that is exactly what we need to take into all of these conversations about the definition of marriage, cohabitation, polygamy, divorce, same-sex parenting, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, and whether or not adoption is something that adults have a right to or whether or not adoption is for something else. Oh, that is fascinating. Well, let's back up just a bit. Um, I want to go back to your NatCon speech because I thought, mm -hmm. uh, and we talked about this a little bit after the, the speech was over, but uh, I'm a speech and debate coach by, by uh, training and by day. Uh, and uh, I thought your, your, the rhetorical device of continuing to repeat this is a child in that speech was fabulous. Um, but I want to go back to your intro. You you took the audience back to the basics. You took Vince Lombardi's famous, this is a football speech. And mm -hmm. you were ready with a picture of a, a, I don't know if there's anything unique or special about her beyond the fact she's a unique, special, unrepeatable person. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was a picture of a girl. And your phrase was, this is a child. Um, what is it about our culture that necessitated starting there? Have we forgotten some basic things about what children are? Yeah, we have um, elevated, right? Like I said before, adult sexual expressionism has become the highest good. And reality has bent, you know, to, in essence, make sure that that God can never be violated, right? Or challenged at all. And when it comes to sex, right? If, if sex is to be God, then children must be sacrificed. Um, and so we have had, honestly, beginning with no-fault divorce laws and the sexual revolution. This didn't start with gay marriage, right? This didn't start with surrogacy. This started with probably technologically the birth control pill and legally no-fault divorce and mm. culturally the sexual revolution, right? That's really where this began, was that adult sexual freedom and sexual desire, sexual identity is the most important thing. And so everything has been warped around that false god. Um, and that has meant that children have had, like what we think about children and who they are has also been warped to, mm -hmm. to fit that false narrative of what is the ultimate thing. And that is, you know, adult sexual fulfillment. So um, yeah, like we have lied about who children are, right? We have lied through phrases like uh, kids are resilient or if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy or biology is irrelevant, any two will do, or Hmm. men men can be great mommies or women can be great or kids don't need mommies and daddies, right? They just need parent one, parent two or whatever it is, right? And so we've got all of these popular phrases and popular ideas that have been messaged to us over and over through culture, through um, highly pr produced 
Netflix series or whatever it is. And we've believed that we've believed them and children have suffered. So yeah, we do need to relearn what is a child. Well, in that case, take us through kind of some of the basics. What in fact is a child? What does a child need in order to flourish? Yeah. So I just, I, I was so, I've heard the, this is a football so many times, but I never really like dug in and researched like, well, what was going on? Right. And it was that he had this team, Vince Lombardi had this team cream of the crop. Like it wasn't because of lack of skill or, um, or excellence or training or anything that these guys failed to achieve this, what should have been an easy victory, which was, um, you know, the national football league championship of 1961. They completely botched it. They botched what should have been an easy lead. And I look at that and I'm going, marriage, marriage is the thing that should have been completely self-evident. Like we should have been able to win this with our hands tied mm. behind our back. It's so self-evident. And yet we lost. Almost everybody in the Western world lost this battle because we got distracted. We forgot the basics. And the basics are, what is a child, right? So he started with, this is a football. And he started with, here's the basics. This is how a football is made. This is how you block. This is how you tackle. And so what I tried to do at that NatCon speech is to say, this is a child, okay? This is a child. So we talk about how this child is created when the gametes of one man and one woman come together to create a distinct and unique human being. Okay, this is a child. This child is going to, her thriving is going to be maximized when she is raised by that one man and that one woman. This is a child. Only that man and woman will give her something that she craves, her biological identity. This is a child. Sociologists on the left and the right have shown that if this child is supposed to be safe and loved, being raised by the two people responsible for her existence will maximize the likelihood that she will be safe and loved. This is a child. If she is raised by the two people responsible for her existence, she will have the perfect gender balance in her home. She will get the mothering and the fathering, which are distinct and complementary, that will help her to thrive. This is a child. Supreme Court decisions will not change these realities. You know, popular cultural talking points like love makes a family doesn't change these realities. Different ways that we can combine sperm and egg in the laboratory doesn't change these realities. This is a child. She does not blog. She cannot submit amicus briefs. She doesn't speak at conferences. This child needs you, the adult, to advocate on her behalf. This is a child. When it comes to questions about marriage and family, she deserves your sympathy, not the adults, right? Not the adults who are suffering with infertility, not the adults who are trying to argue a case in New York that their insurance company should pay for um, a, a custom ordered surrogate born child. This child deserves your sympathy, you know, not the polygamous guy and the sister wives who say, we want to be, we want our relationship recognized. Like this child is the victim when you get questions of marriage and family wrong. So that was the point of the speech, right? Was to lay out these absolute non-negotiables about who children are and what they need. These are realities that will not bend despite what laws, how laws change, how culture changes, how technology changes. The, the summary is like either our laws, our culture and our technology will recognize and respect who she is or they will victimize her. Those are the only two options. So that was the point of the speech was just to lay out the fundamentals of what human children are and then say, all of our policy, all of our cultural ideas and all of our technologies have to honor this reality. 
it's an excellent speech, and we'll definitely link to that uh, in the in the show description, just so uh, any of our listeners who, after they finish this episode, want to go back and uh, check that one out. Um, a couple of fun, quick follow-up questions on that. Um, in that speech, you talked about this a little bit, but I wonder, would love if you could kind of draw that a little bit more. Um, you talked about how the, the death of the father does, in fact, affect even the biology of children. Could you expand mm-hmm. on that or walk us through some of that real quick? Yeah. We don't have a lot of data about mother loss because as a species, um, mother loss is much more difficult than father loss, right? Actually, one of the points of marriage was the mother is a fairly uh, reliable constant in a child's life because she is biologically non-negotiable for the first nine and a half months of child development. And then she is connected literally by a cord that has to be cut. And then there's also these biological chemical processes of breastfeeding and bonding that makes it less likely she will abandon the child. Hmm. Commercial surrogacy is going to change that for us. But when it comes to parental loss, we have a lot of experience with father loss, right? We've got generations of kids that have been raised without their dad. Um, Previously, that was more the result of death, parental death, uh, paternal death. But now, since the sexual revolution, all of these new progressive ideas have taken hold, it's more likely to be as a result of abandonment. But that father loss, especially early in life, actually shortens a child's telomeres. That's the end cap of their chromosomes, which as you can imagine, like if you are changing a child's chromosomes, um, you are going to affect every part of their life from health, um, the likelihood of developing chronic illnesses, and even their lifespan, right? Losing a father, especially for boys, shortens their life And that's not something that is going to be changed when somebody else enters their life or even if they have a great mom. Losing your dad statistically is going to shorten your lifespan. Um, We also have the widely agreed upon um, reality that girls who don't grow up with their biological fathers on average start their period one year earlier. There's debate about why that is. Um, Is it because from an evolutionary perspective, she senses a shortage in the pop. The, the population's been depleted. There's not enough men. I need to prepare myself to replenish the human species. Uh, some sociologists posit that it's actually the presence of biologically foreign pheromones because maybe mom has um, a new partner, a, a lot of different boyfriends coming through, or a stepfather um, that her body does not recognize as the, that protective man, but instead it's signaling for her to start reproducing, right? So we don't know exactly why, but we know that father loss means children start their reproductive cycles earlier. You couple that with what is what children with, without a dad experience, which is father hunger, and that is why you get an explosion of teen pregnancies um, in girls that don't have a loving and connected father in their life, right? Because they're ready to reproduce sooner, um, and they're hungry for that male love that they missed out on. So this idea that um, you can just cut and paste adults into a child's life and and mothers and fathers are optional, like just from a physical perspective, that's false. You're not talking about um, hypotheticals or theoretical things. You're talking about objective, medically measurable um, given the right tests and equipment, you could compare a, an 18-year-old who had a father in the home and an 18-year-old who yeah. did not, and you could you could measure this difference. This is an objective difference that yeah. this, this change causes. Well, let me just say, this is a population-based difference. Okay, so, you know, demographics is destiny for a society, but not necessarily for an individual. And mm-hmm. so that is why it's so important to have large 
randomly derived um, studies, studies using randomly derived participants, longitudinal over a long period of time with adequate control groups and all of that. Like we need good social science on this 100%. But what I'm talking, those two examples I gave to you, there's no subjectivity, right? We have measured the mm. length of children's telomeres. We have measured population-based data showing that children without dads begin to menstruate sooner. So I understand uh, coming uh, with a little bit of skepticism towards some of the social science uh, results because absolutely the institutions have been captured and so much of this data is being adulterated. Um, and we talk a lot about studies, especially when we're looking at um, same-sex parenting and the studies that have been used to promote same-sex parenting. But those two examples, those are just biological realities. I don't. There's nobody on the left or right that are going to disagree that this alters a children's physical bodies. That is absolutely fascinating. The other piece I wanted to ask you about was uh, really the uh, the concept of maternal love and paternal love. Could you kind of walk us through what those are, and particularly the data on kind of how those both contribute to the well-being of a child? Yeah. Well, especially before the same-sex marriage debate when this was not as politicized, um, you really didn't have a lot of people arguing that men and women are totally interchangeable. In fact, what you saw, like almost with unanimity, was sociologists saying, men do something for kids that women don't do. Women do something for kids that men don't do. And so there's two aspects of that. There, one is the developmental aspect, that men and women are different. Right? We're different in our bodies, we're different in our brains, we're different in our hormones and the way that we connect with our kids. Um, and it just makes me laugh because the people that would say, oh, it's so important to have like a female presence and a female voice on the Supreme Court because women have something distinct you know, to give to that institution are the same people that say, oh, there's nothing special about a woman in the home. Two men will be just fine for that kid, right? So gender balance matters in every institution strangely, except the institution responsible for human formation. And that is the family, right? So side note, right? But we recognize that women do something distinct. Um, and that's certainly true when it comes to developmental connection with a child. So in general, like the, the general differences that have been observed, generally agreed upon is that women tend to care for kids, right? We tend to make sure their teeth are brushed, their lunch is packed, they're going to bed on time, right? We, we are the ones that spend 50% of our time doing registrations. Like 50% of my life is just registering my kids for everything. <laughs> Okay, that's all I do. Um, but that's what we do. Like we're just bent towards caretaking. Um, women care for kids, men play with kids. And a lot of that is their larger bodies, um, higher levels of testosterone that makes them a little more physically involved with kids. Uh, it is so critical. Like you, you go to any like church group um, and you get a baby. We did, you know, this happened at our uh, church gathering a while ago. There's a new baby. We're all sitting at a table. We pass the baby, right, around, all around. And you, you get to the moms, right? And we're all like snuggle, snuggle, cuddle, pass, snuggle, snuggle, cuddle, pass. And then it gets to the dad, right? The dad just grabs the baby and he's like, right? He's like, <laughs> that baby's like eight months old and he's already bringing the adventure. It's just, his brain is wired differently. What a gift, right? And so those same kind of care taking and playing with, that manifests itself in the activities that we do with kids too. So 
you'll notice that moms tend to emphasize more fine motor skills with kids, right? Because they're doing things tend to be confined to the home. So like with my kids, right, they would chop celery with a butter knife, you know, when I, and they learn that fine motor skills. How can you make every piece of celery the same length? But with their dads, with their dad, they are like in the back, um, sharpening spears to throw across the street in the empty parking lot. Like, like they're just using different groups of muscles, right? Fine motor skills with mom, gross motor skills with dad. Um, the way that dads talk to their kids is different. Um, women naturally simplify their language for their kids. And so it's it's actually brilliant. And it's like this brilliant, perfect design where kids always have one adult that is like simplifying and talking to them right at their level, right? Like, oh, honey, be careful, you're gonna get an owie, right? And then you've got the parent that talks to their kid like they talk to everybody else. They don't simplify one thing. They're just like, um, I'm seeing an absolute collision in your future if you don't change course, right? And so you've got one parent that is making sure they understand everything and one parent that's forcing them to cognitively expand and reach with every interaction. Um, there was this one fascinating study that we talk about in our book um, where, dad's reading to kids increases their vocabulary in ways that mom reading to kids doesn't. And it's not because they choose different books. It's because they read the same material in a different way, right? So mom is reading the book with kids going, can you count how many pigs you see on the page? One, two, three. And then you've got dad who's going, this is what I want to know. Where'd the pig get all the bricks? Did you see a brick factory here? I didn't see a brick factory anywhere. I mean, is he importing it? Does he have like an Etsy business on the side where he's like producing bricks on his own? I mean, where is he getting the stockpile from? That doesn't make any sense to me. So like just the natural differences between mom and dad do something distinct mm. from one another. What dad does is not what mom does. What mom does is not what dad does. And complimentary. What dad doesn't do, mom naturally does. And so it's a mind blowing design that will naturally fall into place if the child is raised by the two people responsible for their existence. Mm -hmm. So on mothering and fathering, that is one aspect, the developmental aspect, but there's another aspect too on maternal and paternal love. And that is kids don't just want love in the abstract. Like we've, that has been one of the main premises of the modern family is that kids just need love but they don't. They crave male specific love mm -hmm. and female specific love, right? And I just posted, you know, a story a couple of days ago of uh, some celebrity I should know, but she was talking about how she had to leave her daughter with her daughter's father because she mentally was not well in early, like postpartum and all of that. Mm -hmm. And and she's with. She admitted the dad is a great dad. He's such a good dad. He loves her so much. And yet, her young daughter is going around to every woman that she knows, saying, "Can you be my mommy? What about you? Can you be my mommy? I want a mommy," because it's not enough to have her father's love. Mm -hmm. She wants to be loved by a woman. And so we talk about in the, in our book, we we call that mother hunger and father hunger, right? That one dad, or two dads, or ten dads will never satisfy a child's longing for maternal love because that is something that can only be supplied by a woman. So, um, you know, what, what we're kind of getting at is these unbending child realities. And if you believe this, it is going to have major implications for family formation, whether it's personal decisions or policy decisions. 
Now, does that kind of hunger for maternal and paternal love, is that relate, is that changed at all over time? Like if, if two parents split at when the kids are say 15 and 18, is that perhaps less damaging than if the kids are say two and four, or is it, is it still there? Is that still, I guess, is that, is there, is there even, are there even studies that are kind of looking at the age factor in yeah. the, the dynamic chain? It's so funny because um, divorce is so commonplace and there is such a longing to justify it in terms of um, using it as a, a tool to satisfy adult desires. Um, it really is the original redefinition of the family, right? No fault divorce is the original redefinition of the family, which is built on the same premises that we've used to redefine the family in all the other iterations, like the kids will be fine, the kids are resilient, um, you know, the kids, even like the more the more adults loving a child, the better, you know, oh, two Christmases, wonderful, you know. So we act, they have actually done studies on like, is there a sweet spot for divorce? And there is, right? It's like elementary school-ish, right? Not in the first five years, but then don't divorce when they're teenagers. Like here's the sweet spot. Like if you really want to ingrain a new way of life and actually exploit, you know, their their tender allegiances to their mom and dad, here's the sweet spot. This is when you want to divorce. But like we've been studying divorce for decades. And the reality is that it doesn't matter when you divorce. It it has a measurable impact on a child's physical health, right? These kids of divorce are more likely to suffer from chronic illnesses when they're older. They're just more likely to get common colds than kids who grew up with intact families. It impacts their emotional well-being, right? These kids are less resilient and able to handle their own emotional struggles. Um, it impacts their academic health, right? Like this kids who have gone through a divorce, they don't perform as well in school. It impacts their relational health, right? They're much less likely to be able to form their own stable relationships. And if they can, to be able to maintain those relationships. So um, maybe it's not as bad at certain times, but this idea that it's important here, maternal and paternal love is important here, but not here. Um, you know, that is, that is the rationale of somebody who is seeking to serve themselves rather than give their children what they need. Very thoughtful. Very excellent. Um, now, I, I want to kind of go back to another piece that you mentioned in the uh, the NatCon speech. Uh, you focused on the way that having an unrelated biological male in the home created potential danger for the child or children in the mm -hmm. home. Could you walk us through some of the possible scenarios where that would happen and Kind of what does that do for the likelihood of child endangerment? Yeah, good. So this is probably when people ask me, like, what's kind of the most important plank of what you're doing? Um, I would say if you understand the importance of biology in the parent-child relationship, you're actually going to solve almost all of the rest of these issues because biology is a wrecking ball for all of these phrases and ideas that we've had about modern family and what kids need. Chapter one of the book, we talk about why children have rights. And we talk about why Democrats and Republicans should care about those rights. We talk about why there's a connection between children's right to life and right to parents. But after that kind of foundational chapter, we go directly into biology matters. Biology matters in the parent-child relationship for two reasons. The first one is that statistically, and everybody loves to talk about the exceptions, and I will talk about the exceptions once you understand the rule, but statistically, the rule is a child's own biological mother or father is the most connected to, 
protective of, and invested in them. We have, unfortunately, decades of data of children raised with non-biological adults, and we see that they give less money, they invest less time, they invest less medical care, they buckle the, the seatbelts of children who are not related to them less than they buckle the seatbelts of their own children. Um, and so they just tend to be more prone to abuse, neglect, and maltreatment than children who are raised by their own biological parents. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, what we see is the presence of an unrelated adult drastically diminishes child outcomes. So there are exceptions, right? The exceptions are incredible stepmothers or stepfathers who have recognized, not only am I interested in this child's mom or dad, I'm interested in this child. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into this relationship because I am going to seek to fill the hole that was left by a negligent biological parent. Those adults exist. They deserve our recognition, our support, and our applause. Absolutely. But statistically, children who are raised by their mom and stepfather fare about as well as children raised by a lone mother, which is to say, not as well. Not as well. No kid is doomed, but statistically, the deck is much more stacked against them. Hmm. Further, when you are talking about child endangerment, statistically, the most dangerous person in a child's life is a cohabiting unrelated man, whether that's mom's boyfriend or a stepfather or even some guy that is living in the home for whatever reason who has daily access to the child. Um, you know, we cite the work of some evolutionary biologists who did massive studies on Canadian children, population-wide data sets that showed that children were 120 times, not percent, 120 times more likely to be beaten to death by mom's boyfriend or a stepfather than their own biological father. Mm. And so this idea that biology is optional uh, is absolutely a fabrication of this wish-fulfilling sexual fantasy land that adults have created for themselves. Because if biology matters, if it's true, which it is, that biological parents advantage children in ways that unrelated adults do not, then the onus is on everybody, all adults, to ensure that if they form a family, they are forming it around the rights of children to both their mom and dad, rather mm -hmm. than expecting children to sacrifice the conditions that are most likely to make sure they are safe and loved so the adult can live as they please. So that's reason number one, why biology matters. Reason number two, why biology matters is because only those two adults grant children something that they crave, and that is their biological identity. You know, we talk in the book about how, you know, we kind of do this thought experiment of think back to whatever great pieces of art, great novels, movies that you've seen um, that talk about a child going on a quest, a lifelong quest to search for their long lost mother's boyfriend. Can you think of anything like that? Not a what one. about, yeah, not one, right? Now, like name something where a child is going on a quest to find their missing father and it's like, I can think of like rap songs, everything from rap songs to like Pericles to like Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, like to, to American Tale, you know, uh, like 
this longing to know from whom you came is foundational to what it means to be human. And so this idea that you can just swap in and out parents and biology is irrelevant um, belies this foundational human need that we have to know from whom we came because it's very hard to know who we are if we don't know who our mom and dad are. And so we, we know that because we now have decades, waves and waves of sperm donor kids and now some egg donor kids who will spend one swab uh, you know, of a DNA test or 10 years of an internet search trying to find their missing parent. Mm. Because even if they were raised by a loving heterosexual couple, there's still something that only that those two adults, their own mom and dad can give them. I can, I, I'm thinking of a couple of friends of mine who were adopted as, as infants and just hit moments. In one case, I'm thinking of a friend in middle school, another one in, in high school, um, both just, they did their own version of that exact thing. They wanted to yeah. know who their parents were. And in both cases, they were in loving homes, very supportive, financially well-off circumstances. Like it wasn't like it was a, oh, I want to be a prince of a foreign country kind of thing because right. I'm so poor. It was like, no, just I want to know where I come from. And yeah, that that's that's I mean, that's definitely a real thing. Also, if we can jump to a uh, slightly different um, topic, you mentioned that the kind of the third plank in your book was the uh, you mentioned natural law, social sciences, and children's stories. I, I wonder if we could take a moment uh, if you have any um, stories on hand or that you know well enough to just kind of tell, but share some of those stories. I that too I thought was just a very powerful because uh, mm -hmm. I. I I mean, I, I have, uh, I don't have any homosexual friends who have adopted children, but I definitely have homosexual friends who would say they would make great parents. And from mm -hmm. all external observations about kind of financial responsibility, provide a, uh, provide a home, uh, good schooling, probably going to be in that upper tier of society. Like they would, they seem like very responsible people. Uh, so I, the, the children's stories that you shared at NatCon, I just thought were very, very powerful. So I'd love to, uh, if you could share some of those stories of kids who've grown up in those homosexual families, um, what, what was their experience? Yeah. Well, our argument is not that gay men won't be great dads. Um, they, they absolutely can. You know, my mother is in a relationship with another woman. She was an incredible mom. Most of the things that I do well as a mom, I am doing because that's how she mothered me. So mm. the argument is not, oh, your sexual attractions are going to qualify or disqualify you. It is your own connection with your own physical child qualifies or disqualifies you largely, right? And so I look at my gay and lesbian friends who would be fantastic mothers or fathers. And I just say, your longing for a child is good. You cannot make a child sacrifice their mother or father so that you can form your family around your romantic relationships. If you are going to form a family, it has to be around the child's natural rights. And that is the same message that you give to the infertile heterosexual couple who goes to church with you on Sunday. It is, you would be incredible parents. I am so sorry that you are suffering like this. Whatever solution you find to your longing to be a parent, it cannot come at the expense of severing a child's relationship with their biological mother or father. I am also the wife of a pastor. When I am not doing children's rights advocacy, I am in his office with couples that are struggling in their marriage, serious struggles, porn use, childhood drama, um, lack of an emotional connection. I mean, like the, the thing, marriage is hard, right? But the message to them is not, hey, 
you know what, go find your sexual fulfillment with your secretary. It is, you have to figure out how to work through these issues as a married couple, because forcing your child to live in split homes and have a split life cannot be the right option. The way you're dealing with your longing and your suffering cannot be at the expense of children's right to be known and loved by both of you every single day. So that's what I mean. This is a message that is indiscriminate, right? But now let's talk a little bit about these stories of motherless and fatherless kids, because um, this is not exclusive to same-sex parenting, right? But we do see it more pronounced there because the narrative there is supposedly that these kids fare no different and they're just fine and they don't care if they have a mom or dad, right? They're just so grateful to have two parents that love them or whatever it is. Um, and so we do allow the stories to take the lead when it comes to making the case here because honestly, conservatives and the pro-family world has always had the best research. We've always had the statistics. We've always had common sense and natural law. And even like I said, the five major religions on our side have agreed on this, but we have never done the thing that actually stirs the heart. And that is share the stories. We've never humanized the children who have been victimized by these distorted and deceptive cultural ideas. Um, so uh, yeah, here's a few stories, right? Um, the one, one of them that I shared is my friend, Samantha, who was raised by her father and her father's boyfriend. Um, and they loved her. They loved one another, right? She didn't actually know that mothers existed until she was in um, kindergarten, right? Because she was, it was just them and their home. And she really didn't have a lot of exposure to, so she went to kindergarten and she watched this movie called The Land Before Time, where Littlefoot lost his mother. And she oh. suddenly went, what is mother? Mother is your parent who's a woman. I want mother. Where's mother? Mm. And she said she spent the rest of the day crying in the arms of a teacher that she would never see again for a mother she didn't know she had. And she exhibited a lot of those mother hunger symptoms where she would then start to gravitate to any woman that showed her any amount of love and affection. And, and instantly, I, I love you. Will you be my mom? Will you be my mom? And we've actually seen this with children with single moms, right? Where they have a father hunger and they have to be careful, right? Because they will trust too soon a man who shows them affection. And we actually have the stories of, you know, a guy named Corbin that we quote in our book, whose mother, parents divorced, mom was a lesbian, had several female relationships. And he said, I was taken advantage of by men because I wanted their affection too much. Mm. Um, I put myself into some, I was victimized by men because I was so desperate for male love. Um, you know, I, my friend Brandy um, talks about how she grew up with lesbian parents. And um, at, when you're a kid, you're so protective, right? And she's like, I never would have said a word against homosexual parenting or anything like that. But I will tell you that even as an eight-year-old, every time a plane flew over my house, I would drop what I was doing and run out into the backyard and wave, wondering and hoping that my father was on the plane looking down at me. You've got, you know, children who were conceived through sperm and egg donation, um, who ha who were told, hey, you know, mommy and daddy couldn't have a baby on our own, so a nice woman gave us her eggs, and now we have you, right? You're you're so lucky, um, and you've got those kids who talk about how they go to bed at night fantasizing, who is my mother? 
Does she know that I exist? Have I passed her on the street and not known it? Does she have curly hair like me? Because nobody else in my family has curly hair. Do her parents, do I have grandparents? Do they love, if they knew me, would they love me? I mean, like, these are just, this is not because children are raised in heterosexual, in homosexual houses. This is the questions that human children ask. This is simply what it means to be a human child. And we have suppressed, right? And we have, we have suppressed this reality and we have almost gaslit these children because my friend, uh, Heather, who literally was raised by two mommies, Heather and I submitted an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the Obergefell case, the case that legalized gay marriage for the entire country. And all we did was fill it with the stories of kids um, with two moms or two dads talking about how much they wanted a mom or dad. And so Heather grew up in a hmm. lesbian community, very open, loving, tolerant, progressive. All of these women were, her whole community was, um, nobody was telling her you should have a dad, right? Nobody was saying, the ideal family structure is for you to have a mom and dad. In fact, what she heard is you're so lucky to have two moms. That's what she heard all her life. And yet, as a little girl, she writes, as a little girl, I so desperately wanted a daddy. Mm. And because that longing didn't go away, she wavered between hating him for not being there mm -hmm. and hating herself for wanting something that every adult in her life said she should not want. And so she started to feel like there's something wrong with me. There must be something wrong with me that I want a dad. Right. And so I, I like Millie Fontana from Australia. It's the same kind of thing. She grew up with two lesbian parents. They she would talk about she would go through her family albums like she would just flip through the family albums trying to find a man that looked like her. Right. And her parents would say, why do you want a dad? You have two moms that love you. You should be so happy. And then she would say, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that I don't love this other woman? the way that I'm supposed to, there must be something wrong with me. And so I just think that like, you read those stories, open the book, open the book, read them yourself. You look these kids in the face and say, love makes a family kid. Love makes a family. Why doesn't you, why aren't you like living out this family mantra? Why won't love make a family? It doesn't, it doesn't. Kids want to be loved by their own mom and dad. And you're not gonna be able to reason or legislate that away. You said earlier that biology is a wrecking ball for this whole ideology. And I, I think that's such a fascinating summation of, of all of this. And it's it's pushing back to really the limits of I mean, there there are some things that we can we can change, we can customize, that we can we can adapt over time. And there are other things that really, if we do, we mess up ourselves, we mess up children, we yeah. mess up institutions. Um I want to kind of go back and make sure I understand um, your position on something that seems to come up a couple times. Um, where does where does you mentioned infertile couples thinking about adoption? Like where does mm -hmm. where does adoption come into this? And we're talking. I'm thinking of a, a best case scenario where uh, mm -hmm. you've got good you've got a good couple with they've got stable finances and all those things, and you've got children that have been um, for either. Uh, put up for adoption by way of foster care through the state or through some kind of formal adoption agency, uh, but or that you've got a, a an unwed mother, a teenage mom who has said, I am just not at a place where I can raise this child. I want this child to have a mom and a dad who will provide stability. 
where 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 does that where does your position kind of see that playing in? Where what are the rights of the child in that? And the how do how do you do adoption with an eye towards the rights of the child? I guess is how I want to phrase that question. Good. So because we live in a broken world, there are scenarios where children will need to be removed from their home or cases where they are abandoned um, or relinquished. Mm -hmm. um, in case of the single mom with the unplanned pregnancy, the answer to that is almost always parenting. Parenting is the answer to that. Th the answer is both the mom and the dad conform to the child's right to be known and loved by both of them and both of them reorient their lives around the rights and well-being of that child. If they can't, then sometimes the birth mom may choose to relinquish the child, right? Or in the case of like my son oversees uh, orphanages, largely special needs children uh, where they may have been abandoned because of their special need or genuinely orphaned through tragedy or something like that. So you do have cases, you do have abusive biological parents that should lose custody of their children. I will add that the family advocates, the child advocates that I've talked to who advocate for foster kids um, in the system will say, those children who are removed from their home almost never, like minuscule trace amount come from homes where they were raised by their married biological mother and father. It was almost always single mom and cohabiting guy, right? And that was the, that was what, um, that was the impetus for the removal, right? So even biology and the importance of biological connection would, if you had married biological moms and dads raising their kids together, you would more than decimate the population of children in foster care in this country right now. But let's just talk about those scenarios, right? Where you, where there is a need for adoption. So the answer to that is whether or not you're infertile or not, adoption does not exist for you. This is not a way for adults to get kids. This is not a way for adults to complete their families, right? A lot of people say, well, do you think that LGBT people, LGBT, LGBT people have a right to adopt? And I'll say, of course not, because no adult has a right to adopt. My husband and I did not have a right to adopt. No adult has a right to a child that is not biologically theirs. Children who have lost their mother or father to abandonment, to genuinely orf being orphaned, um, they have a right to be adopted, okay? So first we need to properly understand adoption as a child-centric institution. The child is the client. The goal is to find the right home for a child that has lost their mother and father. And in those scenarios, you should prioritize the homes where the child will have the maternal and paternal love that they crave, that will maximize their development, and married homes that bring the stability that children need to thrive. So it is not like every adult should have the same level of access to children that need to be adopted. It is not about any adult getting kids. It is about finding the right home for children that have lost their parents. So we spent all of chapter nine in the book talking about adoption, first putting forth a child-centric view of adoption and then contrasting adoption with reproductive technologies, right? So adoption as an institution centered around the well-being of children versus reproductive technologies, which function as a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. So, you know, I used to work at an adoption agency. I'm an adoptive mom. 
when you properly understand adoption, I am an advocate for adoption. Um, and it is absolutely reinforces children's rights and well-being, far from being an affront to children's rights, right? This idea that adults do hard things for kids, sometimes you see that most clearly in adoption. Mm -hmm. I have a friend of mine, uh, uh, David and his wife, Becca, they have, uh, I think at this point, two biological children that are, are theirs biologically. And then I believe they are up to four that they have three, they're up to three that they have adopted. And I think they are, no, they have three. Okay. Yes. You're on the show, love. That was my wife jumping in to correct my numbers. I'm very bad with numbers sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm a humanities guy. I really appreciate people who are good with numbers. So they have three yeah. children that are theirs biologically. And um, I'm just going with more than one that they've adopted. And I think in, in their case, I just think uh, there's, I remember one of them was coming out of a, I mean, uh, the mother was, um, uh, was a different state and the mother was uh, drug addicted and I, it just was not at all in a stable place in all kinds of ways. And they provided a, a much better place for her uh, in their most recent adoption. I remember David was thinking through, like they, they chose to go with an open adoption and he was the first person I've talked with who's really been a big fan of that model of adoption. And they found it to be a very helpful thing to have a positive relationship with both mother and father of the, the child they've adopted. And mm -hmm. they, they've been able to create lines of communication that the, the adopted child absolutely loves, which I think supports your argument pretty substantially. Well, and the numbers support the argument, right? 50 years ago, and especially in the 1950s and 60s, you actually had adoption agencies recommending, never telling the child that they're adopted, right? Don't even tell them that they're adopted. Mm -hmm. And then you would go into you're adopted, but you don't really need to have a connection or relationship with your birth parents. Now, 95% of adoptions have some degree of openness because adoptees and social workers recognize that children benefit from as many connections with their family of origin as possible, even if they can't be raised by them. So, because why? Because they are asking, who am I? And mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, the adoptive parents can't answer that. So my son and I will talk about that and I'll say, you are a Faust. You are the one that like rounded out our home. You know, you have this gift, you have this, this, um, this talent, but there is an aspect of his identity that I say, I don't know, honey. And if the CCP ever lets your mommy go back, we will try and find them. Mm. Um, but I don't know. And that's hard. No, I'm sure it is. Um, I want to ask you about one other thing as we kind of start uh, wrapping up our conversation today. Um, you've mentioned this a couple times. I want to kind of come back to it. it uh, the, the question of surrogacy. Um, you, you dropped the phrase, I've not quite heard it this way before, commercial surrogacy. Um, I've heard and read more about surrogacy more in the last year than in the last 10, it seems like. Um, mm -hmm. With the war in Ukraine, I, was, uh, I forget if it was the New York Times or the Washington Post, one big newspaper ran an article about uh, one of Ukraine's biggest industries is sort of a tourist surrogacy. Uh, it's illegal in most countries in the Western world to uh, commission a woman to rent her womb for, for a season, uh, but not in Ukraine. So that's created a, a booming business where couples will go to Ukraine and arrange for surrogacy. I I saw the... Uh, the, the uh, I, I read the story about the, uh, the New York couple this morning who was... Uh, couple, the, uh, the gay couple that was trying to 
sue the state of New York for uh, equal fertility assistance rights. The article I was yeah. reading made uh, made mention of the fact that they both are are high powered attorneys in in New York, but did not want to pay the roughly two hundred thousand dollars it would cost. Right. So they wanted the the city insurance to cover that that for them. Um, so I am kind of curious, but I I suspect most people, most ordinary Americans are not paying attention to the fact that there is, seems to be a this this is codified enough as a system in the United States that the New York Times can say it cost about two hundred thousand dollars to uh, yeah. get a surrogate mother. Um, what can you tell us about surrogacy? And I mean, I I I'm assuming you would obviously be opposed to that. This is obviously against the 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 arguments you've been making. Uh, but anything you want to say about that whole area? Because it seems like that's probably the cutting edge of where where these arguments are going in the near future. Yeah, most of the opposition to surrogacy, and there's a lot, stems from the uh, exploitation of women. And you mm -hmm. absolutely see that in Ukraine, right? You've got these women who are homebound in a war zone, but cannot leave because they're carrying somebody else's child and they're in their eighth month and they can't make it across the country. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got the, uh, you know, the babies that have been, you know, even before the war, you had the babies that were abandoned because of COVID policies because their parents couldn't travel over there to collect their designer children. Mm -hmm. And so like most of the opposition and, you know, why, why is it banned throughout most of Europe? Generally, because they've seen it as the ex an exploitive tool for vulnerable women, which it is. Why are these industries setting themselves up in the, in the Ukraine versus um, a more affluent country? It's because wombs are cheap. And in the baby making industry where you have to acquire sperm, egg and womb to make a baby, the womb is the most expensive part. It's the most expensive thing to get a woman to rent her body for nine and a half months. And so what you've seen is you've seen this industry um, kind of go into any place where the women are economically desperate from India to Nepal to Cambodia mm. um, and set up shop. And then very quickly, most of those countries will shut it down within a few years because they've gone People are buying and selling babies and our women are being absolutely treated like breeding mares. And so very often the markets open up and then the markets shut very quickly. My argument against surrogacy um, and, and a lot of those arguments of, about surrogacy and exploitation of women that fall apart um, because most of the women involved in this arrangement, whether it's the egg seller, the womb renter or the social mother who's gonna be raising the child, all those women consent. Mm -hmm. And some of them are making some good money off of this, right? The problem is the child never consents. There is never a scenario, whether it's paid or altruistic, whether it is with the genetic material of the commissioning adults or a donated um, egg or sperm from the commissioning adults. There is no scenario where a child is born through surrogacy where they do not lose something they have a natural right to. So mm -hmm. the way that I break it down for people who are unfamiliar um, is what surrogacy does is it takes what should be one woman mother and breaks them up into three optional, optional and purchasable women, right? The first one is the genetic mother, the one that provides the egg. The second one is the birth mother, the one who provides the womb. The third one is the social mother, the child who raises them every day, okay? okay. Now, ideally, and biologically, this it's been required of our species since the beginning that all three of these women women be the same person, okay? Mm. But surrogacy has allowed us to break it up into a la carte options, okay? And so children actually need all three of these mothers. 
right? They need to know their genetics. They need the biological identity that comes from the egg donor. They form a bond and a relationship with the woman that gestates them, her birth mother, their birth mother. Um, and adoptees have long talked about the primal wound. There's actually a book from 1992 called Primal Wound that is referred to as the adoptee's Bible that talks about um, the struggles to bond and attach um, and to form a healthy self-identity that resulted from losing the only relationship with the person that they knew on the day that they were born. And so we do see that it is the birth mother, even if she's not the genetic mother, even if it was an egg donation situation, you see that it is that woman that the baby longs for and wants because mm -hmm. it's that person, that's the only person that they know in the entire world. And then as we already discussed, children need a female presence in their home every day. They long for it, it fills their heart, it maximizes their development. And so surrogacy is going to force a child to lose one or all of these mothers in their life. And anytime all three of those women are not found in the same person, the child experiences loss. And we used to mourn mother loss, right? We used to know that it was a tragedy, but what surrogacy is doing is it is promoting, incentivizing and commercializing mother loss and in the name of progress. So we have an entire chapter on surrogacy, chapter eight in our book, where we talk about the harms of maternal loss. We talk about how this is a completely unregulated industry. Unlike adoptive parents like me, there's no screenings or background checks for people that commission children through surrogate arrangements. We already have accounts of pedophiles who have custom ordered babies through surrogacy specifically for the purpose of exploitation. So there's no safeguards. This is not like adoption. This is much, this is child trafficking. It is child trafficking. And so I understand that this is an unfamiliar concept for a lot of conservatives. This is something that we need to get right now uh, because the industry is hungry. Um, they are, it is lucrative, they are growing. Um, and as soon as they figure out how to cut out the female parts of this, and um, we already have China that's developing artificial wombs and robot nannies, um, so that, because it's pretty hard to find a woman to rent her body and she tends to be kind of protective of the baby. I mean, like we already have cases where the commissioning parents are like, wait, you've got triplets? I don't want triplets, abort that one. Where the birth mother goes, I can't do that. I can't do that. Like sometimes it's the surrogate and only the surrogate who is standing between the life of this baby and either the fertility doctors or the commissioning parents. It would be so much more convenient and cheap if we could just cut that woman out altogether. So surrogacy is not child friendly. Um, I'm sorry. Um, a lot of us know infertile couples that maybe feel that surrogacy is their only option. But sometimes the answer to what adults want is no, if it means that children have um, their rights and well-being sacrificed. Well, uh, Katie, you make a very compelling set of arguments. Uh, I, I know this is probably not your calling, but uh, in a different in a different world, a different age, I would love to have you on a debate team because I'm pretty sure you would uh, you would like crush the opposition at whatever debate tournament you went to. <laughs> I don't I don't know about that, but um, the nice thing is because this is an argument grounded in reality, um, you can go wherever the question leads and come back to the same child-centric truth, right? Which is immovable, so. Well, I think uh, we met at NatCon, which I think is, is somehow appropriate because the 
the piece I took away from that conference that I found most helpful was just the reminder that um, classical liberalism on its own terms is not sufficient. It needs something mm -hmm. higher. Um, I think in a lot of cases, you're, you're offering a, a similar argument in that um, we, in a lot of senses, we as adults, we make decisions pursuing our own self-interest. And to a limited degree, that's fine. But this is something higher. This is a higher principle that has to uh, be in play, that we have to consider the well-being of the child. And that well-being mm -hmm. of the child for centuries, uh, really millennia, humans have argued that it's the path of maturity to practice self-government, to uh, learn to put things off for a time uh, so that you get a greater reward in the future. Uh, and that mm -hmm. really our problem as a, in modernity is that really we've enshrined selfishness. We've enshrined pleasure as the highest good. And uh, I just want to repeat something you said at the beginning of our, our talk, that if, uh, if sex is to be God, then children will be sacrificed. And that's a mm -hmm. that's a dangerous God, and it is a costly sacrifice. And it's not one that we yeah. can we can make. Um, well, uh, Katie, where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go to uh, learn about more about them before us to maybe support your work? I assume, like all nonprofits, you would love for uh, more donors to find your find you and uh, and support you. Where where can people do that? Yeah, come to thembeforeus.com. Go to the bottom of the page and subscribe, and stay up on everything that we're doing. We are busy. We are think amazing. I am amazed and humbled by the opportunities that we have, given the fact that we are. Um, unconventional you know we don't have a huge institutional presence um, in terms of like large buildings but this message is in demand it is the thing that we, our book's already been it's been out for a year and a half it's been translated into five languages because mm -hmm. this all-out assault on the rights of children through the form of family redefinition is hitting every country and this approach is what is going to be able to beat it back because children are the same everywhere um so come subscribe for sure donate I am I am sick of playing defense. I am ready to go on offense. Um, and honestly, as in the marriage and family world, there's not a lot of conservative organizations. I mean, we've we've been so blindsided by transgenderism. Right? That's where everybody's looking. Children's lives are at stake now. You know, in the marriage and family debate, through you know the massive hungry expansion of big fertility to you know the Respect for Marriage Act that they're going to maybe pass in the lame duck session, which would codify Obergefell in law, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, there's another proposal um, that we are keeping an eye on that would do what that New York couple wants to do. And that is force states and, and insurance agencies to subsidize reproductive medicine for single and same sex couples, which is state incentivized. We as taxpayers would be paying for the creation of intentionally motherless and fatherless children. <laughs> I mean, there are the assaults on children's rights are widespread um, and it's not stopping anytime soon. And I hate it. And it is time for us to go on offense. So um, like, yeah, like get in here with us. The elites are have been captured, right? Politicians, very few of them have the stones to do this. Um, it is just you and it's just me. It's just ordinary adults. So I, if you want to know more about this, get to the book. You will, I, prom I will answer every question in it. You are going to be fueled. You're going to be empowered. You're going to feel like nobody can come against you um, with these arguments and they won't, they can't, right? Like we have put the highest level scholarship and social science in there. We have curated all of the stories to show you exactly why this matters. We have answered 
all of the objections that so often come at supporters of traditional family um, and done it in a way that does not reduce itself to God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve arguments. So this is the place, right, to become the real defender of children. So there's lots of ways you can find us, but in essence, I would just, I would encourage you to become experts on this matter because, because children need defending. Fantastic. Well, I, for one, am thrilled that they have a great defender in you. You've done a wonderful job uh, articulating your case. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, thank you, listeners, for joining us today for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Katie Faust, author of the book Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.